Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Real Scotland Blethers, which is arriving a little bit later than planned thanks to a new job, a new book I'm working on. It's on 1986's Highlander, in case you're interested, and just general life things. My aim is to release at least one new podcast each month in 2019, and I've actually been holding on to this episode for a little while, trying to find the right time to release it. This episode's interview is with Edinburgh-based filmmaker Mark Cousins, whose IMDb listing seems to grow by the week. I spoke to him in 2018 about his then-latest film, The Eyes of Orson Welles, and when I saw that the film was about to premiere here in the UK on the BBC, I thought it was a good time to let more people know about how it came to be from the director himself. I'm recording this introduction on the morning of January 13th, 2019, and the film will be broadcast on BBC4 tonight at 9pm. Hopefully it'll then be on iPlayer for another month or so, so there's plenty of time to catch it. Then there's another of Mark's films, Stockholm My Love, which premieres on BBC4 next Saturday, the 19th of January, so it's a veritable Cousins Fest on iPlayer. A few things to note about this episode. Mark recommends a Hungarian film, which, unless I'm mistaken, is called A Woman Captured, well, the top secret project turned out to be the 16-hour woman-make film, a new road movie through cinema, which is due to be completed later in 2019. Hopefully many of you will get a chance to watch The Eyes of Orson Welles, either on BBC iPlayer, on a streaming service or on DVD, and I really enjoyed Mark's unique take on the man. We also discussed his process for getting films made and touched on his old BBC TV show Movie Drum, which I'd love to see the BBC resurrect. You can watch some of his old introductions on YouTube. I hope you enjoy the episode. Feel free to head over to realscotland.com to sign up for the newsletter to find out when more episodes are on the way. In the meantime, here's Mark. I loved Orson Welles since boyhood and so many people did and he was a kind of, it felt like a sort of father figure in a way and um, but I, did, I didn't ever consider making a film about Orson Welles. We don't need another film about Orson Welles. There's so much yeah. uh, there's so many books etc you know but then I met his daughter uh, Beatrice Wells and she said there's all this artwork there, I think there are nearly a thousand drawings and paintings they've been in storage most of them for years I thought oh really you know and, and of course they mightn't have told us anything too much about him but when I went to see them in various places I thought oh really there's something new here there's a new side to Orson Welles he drew when he wasn't working he drew when he was bored he drew when he was frustrated he drew when he was happy when he was in love he drew a lot around Christmas time and made Christmas cards so I thought oh there are different sides to Orson Welles that we don't see in the films and I thought okay I'll give it a go and I did, and, and I decided it should be a sort of, I, I said to myself, make a letter to a dead dad. You know, it, uh, I remember the day that Orson Welles died, and I cried, because, you know, he was so great and so important to me, and I thought, make it a direct letter to him, so in the film I don't say, <clears throat> he did this, he did that, I say, you did this, you did that. That brings extra in- intimacy, I think, and it allows for more freedom in the writing. I think so. And I mean, there was a, there's a, I don't know, I couldn't quite pinpoint which moment in the film, but there's part of it where I was just, I don't know, I just got lost in the film, you know, just yes, get yes. lost in the, in your voice okay. uh, and the, uh, and the imagery, because yeah. um, there's just so much coming at you, yeah, yeah. but it doesn't ever feel overwhelming. No. It's just great to see him in all these different, yeah. uh, different films and different yeah. photos. Yeah. Um, but what was it like actually doing that? How, how did you write that letter? You know, was that a, was it, yeah, how did you write that? 
I always write after the image, so I never sh write the script first and then find images to fit. It all, it's always the other way around. For me, the crucial thing in any film is its structure. What is the structure of the story? And so this film, as you see, it's got quite an unusual structure. It tells, a, it takes a theme in his life, like social justice, for example, and goes through the whole story of that. And then, as it were, re rewinds the clock and starts to look at another theme, which is his love life. And then we look at another theme. And so it, it, almost like chess pieces, you know, I called it pawn, knight, king, etc. And so once I had that structure, then the writing came pretty, not too, it wasn't too difficult. If I thought, okay, I'm going to really look at his politics, his social justice, the best side of Orson Welles, then I just grouped all the stuff that he did about you know, politics and put that together in a section. And then in the edit suite, I write mm -hmm. as we edit, who always after the image. I suppose taking it back even further, actually, I, we should have probably started talking about the the photos or the the uh, the illustrations and the artwork. You took them back to Edinburgh, is that right? Yes, they're in my flat at the moment. Right, okay. Ah, <laughs> oh, brilliant! This is one of his Santas. That's one it? of his Santas. He did loads of Santas, and this particular Santa, you can see Santa <laughs> smiling. He's yeah. got a big red drinker's nose, and he's got those lovely fond eyes. There's a warmth in this picture, yeah. isn't there? And there's a sort of there's a sadness in the picture as well. I think the grey background, etc. Look at the rapidity of line there. This is proper drawing, isn't it? Like yeah. a speed. You know what? That Wells probably did this image in less than two minutes. Mm. Um, so well, there's those great sounds in the film as well of, yes. of him sort of scratching at the, yes. the paper with the that was done by Ali Murray, a really good sound designer. Like nearly everybody who worked in this film is from Edinburgh, uh, and so Ali Murray spent ages with different. I said I need different sound here, really sharp noises like the sound of pen on paper, but often really soft noises like mm. a soft brush. You know, wanted all of that. Yeah. And um, so you took them back, yes. And then you just—how long did you spend looking through them? Because um, we're, we're talking here, I suppose, about this idea of of creating the the different sections of the film. And but you, I guess you didn't have that idea until you saw the the painting. So, um, and and how, what was the sort of process? The what was the kind of timeline of that as well? When did you start this? Uh, I think I started about two years ago when I met Orson Welles' daughter in America. Uh, and then once I saw the pictures, I immediately came up with the structure. The structure always comes first. So I thought, Pawn Knight, King Joker, blah, blah. Uh, And then thereafter, looking at the pictures, I, I made photocopies of all the pictures so I didn't have to handle them too much. Yeah. And then sort of shuffled them almost, like made piles of what I thought pictures were about politics, made piles of pictures about romance, you know, these letters where he draws himself crying because he's betrayed a woman, and the letters to Rita Hayworth, for example, so they would be all in the romance pile, and then the king pile would be his drawings and paintings of kings of some sort, etc. So I made these piles, and then each one of those was like a short story. So I thought, how do I tell the short story of how, how Orson loved people? You know, he loved women, he had loads of... Uh, love affairs but he also loved men really passionately as well and there are letters where he says I can't wait to hold you to ma male friends you know and so that kind of lust for life I wanted to get in that section of the film and um that uh, was a real pleasure to do that. Once you've got, it's like anything when you're writing an article, once you've got the structure, then you can relax and get the details beautiful or poetic or whatever you're going for. Mm -hmm. um, so that was great. So we didn't, we didn't mess around with the structure in the edit. And in fact, I would say the film probably only changed by about 4 or 5% from the first cut to the final film. Okay.
And I read, uh, doing a little bit of Googling, I read that Michael Moore, you'd met Michael Moore at a film festival. Yes, yes. Uh, and maybe Orson Welles' daughter at the same time, I'm That's not sure. Right. yeah. I'm, I'm, was, yeah. was that just you, uh, you know, after an event, sitting <laughs> in the bar, having a chat and thinking, let's do this, how, how did that collaboration come yeah, about? Yeah, that, it's sort of that, um, <laughs> I've known Michael Moore for a while, I'm on the board of his film festival, Traverse City Film Festival in Michigan. Uh, Michael Moore, we think of him as a very political man, but he's a huge film fan mm-hmm. and he's extremely knowledgeable about films of all sorts, not only political films. So he, he put on some Orson Welles films and invited Beatrice Welles and he said, do you want to meet her? And, and the University of Michigan had just bought a lot of Orson Welles' papers from her, so they were involved as well. And I met up and it turned out she'd seen some of my work and we had a laugh and I have Orson Welles tattooed in my arm and so I sort of hid that because I thought how embarrassing you've got your your father's name tattooed on my arm but she just laughed and said yeah that's his name and then we we hit it off really quickly she's quite she's quite a feisty interesting no-nonsense person which I quite like you know so certainly within an hour she'd said do you want to make a film about my father's art come visit me come visit my home and and um, you can see the rest of the art so it was quite quick, uh, but she's quite, I think, impulsive and goes uh, on an instinct, and I do as well, you know. So, and when I, I speak to her, most days. Yeah. <laughs> and did you? You say you, you started out with a love for Orson Welles. Yeah. Did that? Was that any different by the end of it? Were you? Um, was it? Was it deeper, or did you see anything in him that you thought, oh, actually, hmm, I'm not sure about that side of him, or was it, you know, just mm-hmm. roughly the same? I think deeper is a good word, you know. I knew I knew that Orson Welles was contradictory. I knew that uh, he was wholly admirable, especially in his courage around, you know, education, social justice, etc. I knew he was less admirable in love. You know, I think I think he was duplicitous in love, and um, I uh, so I, I discovered that he was both more admirable than I thought and more duplicitous than I thought. For me, for the longest time, like lots of people, he was like a legend or a myth, a distant figure, you know. But after making the film, I feel a lot closer to him. You know, I walked in his footsteps. I went to many of the places where he lived. I spent time with his daughter. She told me stories. I, you know, I made salad in his favorite salad bowl, you know. And, and that, that, I think it's, it's, it's hard to define why that matters, but as a filmmaker, I wanted to get, closer to him physically mm-hmm. you know I've got even a, one of his boots in my bag at the moment you know and uh, I wanted it's hard to make something about a legend or somebody who feels so distant and I needed to get a bit more intimate with the man you know that's why I wrote the film in the way I did and there is that Edinburgh connection to Wells yes, that you met, you have in the film along with just what five minutes along the road from where we're sitting just yeah. now he was at the, the cameo yes um, in 1953 yeah. was it yeah uh, and I remember reading the, the book on the, on, on the third man yes was it In Search of the Third Man I think mm-hmm. and in there there's a, there's a mention of the, uh, the cinema that is now well it's an Odeon now mm-hmm. just again about a minute away from here yes, yes. where they showed the third man mm-hmm. when that came out mm-hmm. uh, and it's taken it's taken a few months to get from London because it had to go out to the, the regions uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and it, spoke, it, it talked about how the audience were around the, around the block, mm-hmm. literally wa- queued right down the block to watch this film. 
and I think it was New Year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's freezing cold, probably snowing, mm-hmm. and they all went in, and it took so long for the, if I'm remembering it right, it took so long for the projectionists to get the film going. They all started singing the theme tune to the Third Man, the whole audience. Ding, 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 yeah, really? that's really? that's the story that I remember. Was, anyway. The song was famous before the film. Oh, yeah, yeah, because I guess it had been out for a few months, and uh, it just again maybe took a while for the prints yeah, to get around the UK. Um, but that's always every time I go past there. No, you think? I, almost every time I think about <laughs> that night where they were just queuing around the block watching the Third Man. We're going to see films at the, the ABC there, uh, but when I was there, it was like Ghostbusters. I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Wells. I mean, Wells had a, a love of Scotland, you know, and Ireland. You know, they, yeah. he came from a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family, but that was but that world that he came from was sort of too intellectual for him or too cool, not passionate enough. His encounter with the Celtic world, he loved the passion that we have. You know? And uh, when you think of the, if you choose one single text that was central to his work, it was probably Macbeth. Uh, and so, of course, he made a f- film version of Macbeth. And uh, the speech he gave here in Edinburgh was a really interesting speech where he, was, he, he envisaged the future of cinema. He said, you know, we're trying to make films for too many people. You know, we're trying to make films for, I don't know what he said, 60 million. Why don't we make films for a smaller number of people, a more specialist type of cinema, what we would call now arthouse cinema. And he was envisaging that here on the stage of the cameo. Mm. And this film is... is for a smaller audience. I mean, it'd be great, of course, if 60 million people saw it. <laughs> but realistically, I think it's it's going to be seen by a smaller audience. But when you think about your your films being seen, mm. what what is your kind of... Uh, do you have a, an aim? Do you have a goal? Do you say, right, I want it to be seen on this cinema screen, or I want uh, 10 million people see it, or 1,000 people who really love it, or... Mm-hmm. Or do you just make it and you're... you're how does that work? I mean, I, I know I want to move people. I know I may, want to make something what I, what I consider to be accessible. I want to do something that is cinematic, I would say. But you don't know... You just don't know how a film's going to go. Like this Orson Welles film has sold all around the world, including China and Russia, and made three bids for theatric in North America alone, and two from Italy, uh, all over Scandinavia, all over Europe. So it's going huge. And some of the films that I've done, I've done that like the story of film, that big long 15 and a half hour job that I did, you know, played on TV all around the world, you know. So you just don't know. And this one, you know, if, if this film's doing better than I thought it would, which it is, I think it's because it's not just about a filmmaker. It's a bit more, it, it's, it's trying to be about just something more universal than that, which is the loss of a hero or the complexity of human beings where they can be brilliant and awful where they can be modern and romantic. This is true of Orson Welles, and towards the end of the film, I have him have a quote from Walt Whitman, I am large, I contain multitudes. And I think that's what's so moving about Orson Welles for me, and I think you could say that that's what we, we want to do. We want to be complex human beings, and that's why if it's touching people, it could be that reason. And you mentioned as well that uh, when you came in that you're in the edit suite at the moment. Yes. Um, are you able to say anything about what what you're doing just now? Uh, 
the thing that I'm doing just now is the biggest thing I've ever done. I've been working on it for nearly 10 years, and we have kept it completely secret. Okay. So, unfortunately, I can't <laughs> tell you any more than that. Okay. But it does sound like whenever I, I see you or whenever there's an Edinburgh Film Festival comes around, you, you, you always seem to have something coming, yeah, coming up. Or, two or films right. in the Edinburgh Film Festival. So, so how, how does that work? Are you just constantly having um, ideas? I, I'll, I'll tell you, one thing you said to me a few years ago, uh, which I've mentioned to many people since, and it was in this, actually, we're in the Traverse Bar <laughs> just now, it was downstairs, and I said to you, I'm thinking about making a film, a documentary, yeah. but yeah. I just don't know about money and I don't really have much equipment equipment and yeah. I've never really done it and you said go on red don't yeah. wait for the green light absolutely. go on red absolutely. is that kind of your is that Abs- your actual ethos are you just absolutely. constantly going right I'm just going to go and do this film yeah. I don't care we'll see what happens but yeah. I want to do it is yeah. that absolutely you know I I just think I'm going to make it yeah. and so I don't like sitting in sessions in rooms pitching things where you, you're saying here's the film that I will make it's a sort of hypothetical film you know I'd rather start making it because the equipment's so cheap now you know so I start making it and then say to the funders here's actually what it is so they can see the pacing the tone etc so yeah this year I will make three films um, and that's a lot, you know, but I've always had a can-do attitude, you know, let's just get on with it. Uh, I've, I've always sort of worked in a slightly unplugged, outside-the-industry type way, which helps, you know. And I've also always had bags of energy, you know. I, I, I sort of, I flag sometimes, but mostly I've just got loads of energy, and that gets you through uh, the filmmaking process, you know. So I think that's why I do so much. Well, was there a point... Uh, that you thought that this all kind of started for you I mean the, the film making more the, the the documentary making was there a point because I just using my own myself as an example I wanted to write a book for many years yeah. and I kept putting it off because I thought I've never written a book before yeah. again it's that thing of oh I don't know if I can <laughs> and I did it and it was a great fun to do and I proved I could do it yeah yeah did you ever have that sort of moment where you were thinking, I'd love to make a documentary, but I'm doing too many other things? Or did you, was there a time when you just went, I'm going to do it? And then that was a bit of a domino effect, and and here you are now. Or The, the latter, you know, I, I had the first thing I made, I was, I think, 22. I was sitting in a cafe, I had an idea, wrote the idea on a napkin, sent the napkin to Channel 4, and they commissioned the napkin. And so I've never been somebody who's had loads of confidence there's always a fear of making something bad but you can't you can't let that stop you you know the fear everybody has a fear of looking stupid in 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 the eyes of their friends and contemporaries and colleagues but you have to just keep going or at least i think just keep going what's the worst that could happen you make a shit film you know or write a shit book you know but i've always kept going and one of the ways me of me of recovering from the experience of making a film is making another film and that's why I do so much you know and so it, there's a kind of momentum in that I think you know once you start once you've got the, the equipment once you've learned some of the techniques you want to do it again and again yeah. and um well yeah one other thing I was going to ask you about was uh, going back a few years now I remember first time I saw you or no, mm-hmm. knew about you was uh, Movie Drum. Movie Drum, that was a while ago. Um, and yeah, that is, it was a while ago, but there's still a bit of a fan, you know, there's, there's still a love for that yes. on, on, on the internet yes. and uh, people I speak to. Yes. Was that, uh, was that a good thing for you? And do you think there's, there's still, I, I quite like the whole curated 
mm-hmm. the way that films can be created and introduced to you and contextualised. And I get a lot of that just now from podcasts, actually, and um, and magazines as well. But I think podcasts are brilliant. Um, so yeah, I just wondered what what was it like doing that at the time, and do you think we need another movie drum? Um, we. I did movie drum. I did like over twenty years ago now, and then it was hard. You couldn't. It wasn't easy to get films. You, know? you couldn't sort of click. You couldn't search on Google or, or YouTube because there was no, no Google and YouTube. So uh, films were scarce in some ways, you know. Uh, so people would stay up at eleven o'clock at night to watch the movie drum thing. Now the opposite has happened. Films are no longer scarce. We are overwhelmed with choices. So curation becomes even more important. You know, it becomes even more important to have somebody you trust say, "Try this, try that. Here's a here's an aspect of cinema, or that is really good. Here's a genre that is undervalued, etc." So you need a movie drum even more now, I think, than ever before. I wouldn't do it again because I don't like repeating myself. But for me, it was quite a good thing because it made me visible. You know, where I came from, I knew nobody even in the arts world at all. You know, never mind being a, having a job in it. So it gave me a bit of a visibility and it gave me a... I got to choose the films that I showed, you know. So that was actually quite a fun thing for me to do. And I mean, I, f- I felt I was like a DJ back then, you know, spinning discs, you know, like try to... Have, have, you, have you heard this? You know, have you heard that? And I still am a DJ in, in a way, you know. I'm still... A lot of what I do is trying to select songs or more importantly films that um, I think people will like yeah and are you still discovering films oh yeah all the time all the time you know I've this new film that I'm doing is full of discoveries it's it, about about yeah it's full of discoveries of new types of cinema and where do you how, how do you discover them I mentioned their podcast there's some yeah. great fantastic podcasts out there yeah. but is there anywhere that you go I mean is yeah. it just from film festivals from friends from sometimes film festivals what I do nowadays is I just email the film archives in the world because the people who really know the films of Bulgaria for example are the people who work in the Bulgarian film archive and so for years I've just been emailing archives saying you know could I ask you a few questions about the great films made in your country in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, or you know anything, any real masterpieces from Bulgaria or wherever that we that I might not have heard of? And the archives are all are often quite um, pleased to be asked this question. These are the people with the real knowledge, more than the historians, more than the academics, more than the critics. It's the archivists. So that's where I go to. Great. And finally, because we're running out of time, um, apart from your own new film films uh, what film have you maybe found out or discovered recently that you think people should go and search out themselves um, or a, one or two yeah there's an amazing Hungarian documentary that I saw recently about uh, it's called um, a, a woman uh, what's it called a woman enclosed or encased or anyway it's about a woman in her mid 50s who's enslaved by another woman she's her slave in Hungary uh, and it turns out there are 1.4 enslaved people in Europe alone. What's remarkable about this film, it's like a Cinderella story, it's like a fairy tale, except it's a documentary. This woman is imprisoned uh, day in, day out, and finally she escapes. And it's got the feel of a Brothers Grimm myth almost. It's a, it's a real woman. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, good luck with the, with the films. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to your secret project. Uh, when will we find out about that? When's uh, that going to be announced? In the next six weeks. Oh, <laughs> not long. <laughs> Cheers, Mark. Thank you, mate.
pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It was good fun. Good, good. What have you got on for the rest of your day? 